in Philippians 4, at verse 9, we read, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but, lacked, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This morning we are going to be looking at the secret to contentment in life. And contentment is, uh, is an interesting subject for us. As fallen sinners in a fallen world, we, we struggle with it. We have a scene at our house and on a regular basis where we are eating dinner and the meal is going along and, and about, say, halfway through or into the second half of the meal, the questions start to arise. And if you have kids, these questions will sound familiar to you. And the question is going to be dessert. It's going to be something about dessert in some way. Here they're, they're receiving the food that we worked hard to give them. And, and as they're eating it and they're getting their fill, it's, it's not enough because now they're starting to think about what about afterwards? What's going to come next? Is dessert going to come? Can we have ice cream? And if they get the response they're longing for, and that is, yes, there will be ice cream some point after this meal is done. It doesn't just end there. It can't end there because if we're going to have ice cream, can there be whipped cream as well on top of that? And if there's going to be whipped cream, can there be sprinkles? Because, you know, ice cream with whipped cream and not sprinkles, that's not enough. And can there be a cherry? And will, be there, will there be one for all of us? And that's a big deal when you have five kids. Can we all have our own individual one? Because I'm not going to be satisfied unless the full picture comes. I need it all. And even at the end of that, as we all know, kids can struggle with being satisfied. And so can adults. The scene I described is a microcosm of the human heart. A heart that when left on its own can never find full contentment with the things of this earth, whether it be ice cream or marriage or jobs, or education, or health. We continue to struggle. We'll always want just a little bit more. You've all heard that phrase. How much do you need? Just a little bit more than what I have. Yet, what we are told by God in his word is that we should be content with the necessities of life. 1 Timothy 6 says, But if we have food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. Hebrews 13 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, Jesus Christ, has said, I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. 
Yet the problem still remains. We are fallen sinners who continually walk in the cycle of the grass is always greener someplace else. It's always a little bit better someplace else. When I was in Colorado, I would actually experience this all the time. We, you don't really have gardeners in Colorado. You do your own yard. And it was the first time I'd really spent time doing that. And you work hard and you try to get the grass green. And then you go over to the Gammy's house and Dan has this magical power to make his green be a little bit greener. And I sit there going, what am I not doing? Why can't I have a yard like that? And it's a struggle. It's... It's, it's something that we face all the time. And almost every, every subject we look at, we're always looking at, what about a little bit more, God? Just a little bit more. Well, Paul, through the power, of, the power and grace of Jesus Christ, had learned the secret of true contentment, the secret of true joy in his life. He wrote to Timothy in his second letter to him, saying, Godliness with contentment, godliness being Christ, with contentment in him, is great gain. It's great gain. Because contentment in life is highly prized, right? As I've already pointed out, it's something that we're always looking for. Nobody, when they're hungry, goes to a restaurant after this service. You're not going to go to BJ's and open up the menu and your stomach is sitting there needing food and look at the pictures and come to the end as the, as the server comes up and go, as you're just staring at the pictures going, nope, that's enough, I'm good. All I needed to do was look at it. We don't do that because that doesn't satisfy us. We need to be satisfied. When we're hungry, we want to eat. And this is a key connection when we're talking about contentment because contentment and satisfaction are in many ways synonymous with each other. And they are highly valued in our lives. No matter how old you are or what stage you're at in life. Kids want more. Adults want more. Adults want more out of their kids. We want more out of our spouses, out of our friends, out of our jobs. We want more. We want satisfaction. Yet the problem is is that it is very elusive. We are constantly looking for it and we are rarely finding it. Because though the solution to true contentment can only come from a right relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting in God's sovereign, loving purpose for our lives... We nevertheless seek it where it can never be found. We keep looking for contentment in money, in security. We keep looking for it in friends, in our looks, in our health. We keep looking for contentment in life and just freedom from difficulties of life. We can't stand it. After day after day, it's just every day seems to be a hassle. And I can, can I just have one day with a little bit of peace? Then I would be content. Yet by trying to find contentment in those things, we unfortunately make true contentment unattainable because this world is fallen. And the answer to satisfaction in life will never come 
from it. Because I'm sorry to tell you this, if you haven't figured it out yet in your life, a life without troubles is just not going to happen. It will never come. The richest person on the planet still is faced with troubles day in and day out. As we look for true contentment, we find it in a simple solution. It's found when we believe that our lives are in the hands of a loving and compassionate and good God. And contentment comes when we freely and willingly submit to all that he has laid out for us, all that he has blessed us with. In other words, it is found in trusting Jesus. You see, we are content no matter what life brings to us. We are content when this world attacks us in a myriad of different ways, when we trust him first and foremost, when we place our lives in his hand with a willing and joyful heart. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we see from this verse is that not only is contentment something that is a blessing, contentment is also central to the Christian life. It is central to it. You can measure your trust in Jesus by the contentment you find in your life. They'll say that again. Contentment is a measuring rod for your trust in Jesus. If you are content on a regular basis in life, that means you probably are trusting him a lot because troubles are always there. Nobody's exempt from them. And the one who finds contentment amongst those troubles is the one who is trusting Jesus in every situation. Beyond that trust and contentment, satisfaction in Jesus are the backbone for thankfulness in this life. That's why you read where we read earlier, Paul saying, rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice in him. Be thankful for what he has blessed to you with. Because he is always at hand. He is always close by. Trust in him. Find contentment in him. And your heart will erupt with thankfulness no matter what the situation. It may be amongst tears. It may be amongst struggles. It may be amongst pain. But thankfulness will be there. When you are trusting in him. When you are content in him. We see this easily in the text. In verse 9 of chapter 4, as we already read, we read, The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul here is offering himself as an example of spiritual stability in life. He's writing from prison where life is obviously a struggle. 
And he's saying, if you want to know the peace of the presence of God, follow my example. That's where stability will be found. And then moving forward in verses 10 through 13, Paul begins to thank the Philippian church for their gift to him. And as he does it, he again offers himself up indirectly as an example of contentment for the church to follow. And from that, we can draw four conclusions that will give us a biblical definition of what biblical contentment is. The first one is that a contented person is confident in God's plan for their lives. In verse 10, we read, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Years prior, Paul had planted the church at Philippi. And the Philippians there had generously supported Paul, as we read in Acts, as he ministered throughout many cities in Macedonia and Thessalonica and Berea and in Athens and in Corinth. They had been a source of support from him everywhere he had gone. They had supplied gifts to him. They supplied food for him, encouragement for him, prayer for him. Their support followed him wherever he went. And the church's support for him was amazing, but then something obviously had changed. There had been some type of poverty or persecution that had hit the church And as years went on and as Paul had entered into prison in Rome, that support had clearly stopped. But recently, as Paul is explaining here in his letter, their concern for him had been renewed. The opportunity had arose again to support him with a generous gift. In fact, that's how he's writing the letter to them. They had sent somebody out to, to support him with different gifts, different funds, and as he wrote this letter, he sent it back to them in response to that gift. And Paul rejoiced greatly in the Lord as a result. But he did so not because the gift met his need in prison. That wasn't primarily why he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing because, as he says here, it gave proof of their care and concern for him and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he's rejoicing in. This is how he starts off the entire letter. I'm rejoicing because God began a good work in you and he's faithful to complete it. Keep going. Keep proclaiming the gospel with your life and with your goods and with your friendships within the church because I'm rejoicing in this as well. His heart is overflowing that it now at length, at long last, after 10 years or after years, they had revived their concern for him. The word revive is like this, this flower that is now blooming once again, and he's rejoicing in seeing God working in the church there. But don't miss this. Paul's next comment At the end of verse 10, he says, Though you surely did care, you lacked opportunity. Paul is not rebuking them for years of not supplying what he needed. 
because he understood their situation was difficult. Paul is gracious and understanding in his attitude. And what that attitude reflects is his patient, confident in God's sovereign plan for his life. That's why he's content. That's why he's rejoicing. If Paul had not been trusting in God, but rather trusting in the church at Philippi's, their support for him, you can imagine what the response may have been. Finally, I've been sitting here in prison waiting. I've been running around doing all of these things to proclaim the gospel. And and man, I almost starved. Finally, it's come. Finally, somebody has stepped up to the plate and helped me. But that's not Paul's response. We've been there at times. I'm sure every person in this room has been there at times. You're praying for God to supply your needs and you're, you're grumbling in your heart and you're struggling with faith and trust. And, and maybe as he supplied what you were exactly praying for, your immediate response wasn't thankfulness. Because you were never really trusting him. You were rubbing that bottle like the genie. Come on, I need it. You got to bring it to, I need the job. I've been waiting, I've been waiting, I've been waiting. And then finally it comes and you're like, ah. We can live lives like that in a lot of different ways. And Paul is giving us an example here. It's an example of a lack of panic. He's not manipulating the church. He's not making them feel bad. And he's not doing it because he knew that the times of the seasons of his life are in God's hands and his life is going according to his plan. And when he supplies, he rejoices. And when he withholds, he rejoices because that's part of his plan. And he finds contentment in it. Paul's trusting the God who in Ephesians 1.11, we read, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he does it according to his time. And he does it for the best purpose because he's working all things together for good for those who love God. To conform him, to conform us to the image of his son. He's doing all of these things at the time that he wants to do it to make us more like him for our greatest good. And if this morning you are a control freak, you are seeking to control every aspect of your life. And I'm not talking to any one individual because if you were honest and you raised your hands right now, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, the vast majority of us would say, yeah, I'm, that's me. I'm always trying to control everything. I'm always trying to secure my life in all of these different ways from the littlest details to the biggest subjects. And if you're doing that, you're probably walking through life consumed with a lot of frustration. You're probably struggling in so many ways, you probably couldn't name them all. Yet on the other hand, Confident trust in God's sovereign control over all things always leads to contentment. And God's word is asking you this morning, are you trusting in God's plan? Are you content in what he's doing? 
what he's bringing you at the time that he's bringing it to you, in the way he's bringing it to you? And if so, are you thankful? Because you can sit here and say, yes, I am content. But if you're not thankful, I'm telling you, no, you're not. You're not content. You're not trusting in him. Thankful, as I said, is thankfulness is the measure of contentment. Pray that God would do a work and he will supply what you need to find contentment. A contented person is also satisfied with what the Lord provides. In verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. This is Paul's disclaimer to them. In case you think I am manipulating you or trying to make you feel bad about your sport in the past versus now, I'm not. I've learned to be content in whatever situation, whatever state I have found myself in. He's not mean to imply that he's speaking from want or that he is lacking something when he thanked them for his gift. He wants them to grasp this. I am content, though my situation is extremely difficult. Paul is saying, I am not discontented. It doesn't matter. He's speaking about contentment that trusts in the sufficiency of what God is providing, and he is totally satisfied. Can you imagine Paul being in the situation that he is in? This is not some random theologian sitting in some ivory tower who doesn't understand what difficulty looks like. God had called him to preach the gospel throughout the entire world. This was the job that had been given to him, and now he's sitting in prison. I can tell you what my response would be. God, you've given me this ability and this opportunity and this job to share you with the world around me, and I'm sitting in prison. What are you doing? I would struggle with contentment. Sitting with a hungry stomach, waiting for anybody to bring him food as he's chained to a Roman guard. I would struggle with contentment, yet Paul is saying here, I have found contentment. Regardless of my situation, because I am content with whatever God provides. This type of contentment we struggle with because we struggle with understanding the difference between what we need and what we want. It happens quickly. We, we talk about this. Many of you know we're, we're building a house and in our situation, this is what we're doing to help out with Carrie and, and Carrie's parents. We're going to live with them. So we needed a bigger house for all nine of us to live in. And even as I just said that, you heard me. I'm condemning myself. We needed a bigger house. We are living perfectly fine in the house that we are right now, but we need a bigger house. That's how we talk. That's how we think. We've, we set out all these plans, and, and we look at this room, and, and we make comments like, well, we need to do this, or we need to do that. No, we don't. We want to do this. We want 
this to look like that. And we want to, the provision to be like this. And we get confused all the time between what we need and what we want. And Paul has figured out the difference through both of his, his abundance and his need. He's understood what it is to boil life down to its essentials and to be content with those. And as I've contemplated this, you know what's awesome about this? You know what's awesome about our amazing God? He looks at a family like ours, seven people, nine people living in one house, all of us, you know, sleeping in the same room night after night. And he knows how to supply each one of our needs individually because he knows us fully. He can look at my heart and say, I know what Derek needs. And he can look at my four-year-old's heart, Nolan, and go, I know what he needs too. And they may not look exactly the same, but I'm going to supply the needs for both of them exactly according to what my plan is. And in this room, we have hundreds of, or a hundred different people with a hundred different needs, yet our infinite God can answer all of our infinite needs. He supplies as we trust in him is with find contentment in him that he is going to provide what you need. And as you trust him, you find contentment in what he's providing because that's what a content person does. Contented person is, con- is confident in God's plan. A contented person is satisfied with what the Lord provides And a contented person is independent from their circumstances. Verse 12, listen to how he talks. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned the secret of both being full and being hungry, to abound and to suffer. If you're reading from the New King James, the word secret's not in there. If you're reading from, reading from the ESV, it is. That's the thought. I have, I have, it's been revealed to me, this mystery of finding contentment independent from what my circumstance is. Paul had lived a full life and he had learned from his experience that rather he abound, whether he abounds or is abased, whether he is struggling, whether he is in hunger, whether he is in sleepless nights, or whether he is on a bed and has a plate full of food in front of them, he has grown in his spiritual maturity and learned what a life looks like that is content in Jesus Christ. As I said, he's not lived a protected life or a safe life. You listen to his biography or his autobiography, and I'll read this to you in 2 Corinthians 11. You read of his own words where he says, from the Jews, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Just think about that. Five times. 40 stripes minus one. In other words, they had that idea, and you've probably heard this before, that 39 stripes, getting hit with this cat of nine tails, 39 times the person lives. 40, they die. 
Five times he endured it. Five times. Can you imagine the second time through what he must have been thinking? Five times he endured it. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep, sitting upon the sea. In journeys, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, and in fastings, often in coldness and nakedness, besides the other things, what came upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. He says, who is weak? Am I not weak? In Paul's unique and constant sufferings, he had learned the secret of rising above them. He had learned the secret to finding contentment, independent from his daily struggles. As he says in another place in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul fights for contentment. How? By being focused on his home. He's not focused on his circumstances. Of course, he doesn't turn a blind eye to him, to them. It's clear through this text right here. He's not sitting there going, oh, you know, that, that fourth time I got beaten, I was like smiling, like this is like nothing. That third time I got shipwrecked, that was easy. I'd already done it twice. He's not talking like that. It's clear, it's obvious. He says, who's weak? I am weak. But slight momentary affliction in the light of the eternal glory that awaits me. He found contentment in having his eyes focused on home. We all know this intrinsically, what this looks like. I, I used to travel all the time when I did missionary work in different countries, and I hate traveling. I hate it. I love doing missionary work. I hate getting to the missionary field. It, it, it just, it drove me crazy. I'm, I'm somewhat tall and, and you're sitting in those seats and your knees are smashed into the seat in front of you and I have knee issues so my knee is always sore and it's just uncomfortable and I have a hard time sleeping on planes and it's just this torturous circumstance. And if you've traveled with me anyway, anywhere, I don't do a very good job of hiding that I don't like traveling. <laughs> I, I whine. I complain. I sit there going, oh, it's, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the clock. You know, they do that little airplane thing with the map, and I'm just watching it. Okay, halfway there. All right, three quarters of the way there. Two more hours. We're almost there. Of course, then you get off the plane, and for what we do, what we've done in the past, then you've got to sit in a bus for like 17 hours in a row. But it's, it's just torture for me. It was, it's, traveling is such a struggle, and I whine and I complain through the situation. But guess, like, guess what I'm like 
on my way home. Everything changes. We're in the van. Dirt is hitting my face. We're on our way home. Here we go. Oh, I'm in the plane. I'm sitting in the back. And the seat doesn't even go, you know, it's, it's this, this joy right here. I don't get that joy because the seat doesn't go back. Who cares? I'm on my way home. I know where I'm going. My family is waiting. My bed is waiting me. A meal that I can eat and be comfortable with is awaiting me. I rejoice in the comfort of home because that's where my eyes are fixed. Paul is saying, this is how I live my life with eyes fixed on home. And if we this morning were able to take on that type of eschatological, that in time mindset, perspective in every single struggle that we face in our lives, we too would, able, would be able to stay content in our difficult situations. They wouldn't change As I'm sitting on the plane, it's not like I've suddenly been bumped up to first class and making it easy. My situation looks exactly the same. It's just that my heart is now different. I'm focused on what's important. And we too can find when our eyes are focused on Christ and his ultimate plan for our lives, even in the times that are most painful, we can find contentment. Because this is temporary. I mean, even if we had to endure pain for 30, 40, 50 years of our lives, how do you compare that to eternity with him? We can find contentment independent from our circumstances with eyes focused on Christ. This is the counsel that we give all the time when we talk to others. If we are believers, you hear it. You've heard yourself say these words and now it's good to preach it to ourselves because it gives us instantaneous perspective regardless of how old you are. You could be in this room and be 13 years old and find contentment in Christ regardless of your situation. When your eyes are focused on Christ, It's temporary. He is eternal. And this is finally, this is where we end our text this morning. A contented person is strengthened by Jesus Christ alone. What is the secret to Paul's contentment? What has he learned? This famous verse that we all know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter how difficult his struggles may have been, Paul had a spiritual, invisible means of support. His capability and strength came from his union with a capable and strong and eternal and infinite God. And my prayer this morning is that we would all walk away today truly embracing this truth. That we would find the secret to contentment is being content with Jesus Christ. Oftentimes this verse is taken out of context and maybe you have done this as well and I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad. But as D.A. Carson says, that a text without context 
is a pretext for a proof text. That will make sense if you think about it for a really long time. What he's saying is, is that if you read a text out of context, you're going to use it in ways it's not intended to be used. That's his point. And we've all looked at the TV and seen Philippians 4.13 written across different things. And, you know, I can throw this baseball 98 miles an hour because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I can do well on this algebra test because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and when you look at the text, if that were true, that would be awesome. Don't get me wrong. That would be awesome. I would love to be able to throw a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. That would be great. I would love to be able to force my kids to obey me every time I say everything, anything, the first time I say it, because I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I would love that to be true. That would be awesome to just fly home. That'd be sweet. It's just that we know, again, inside of our hearts, that's not really true. Because I can't do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what does the text mean? As we've already seen, I can endure anything through Christ who strengthens me. And isn't that way better than throwing a baseball? Honestly. Isn't the truth of the context way better than some temporary ability that's just going to fade over years? What this is telling us is way better than anything you can imagine on your own because you can endure anything if you have Christ. If he is your focus in life, if he is your ultimate treasure, if he's the one you're holding on to, if you're fulfilling the mandate of treasuring Christ above all things and finding contentment in him. That is way better than any misconception. And this is so critical because think about a life when contentment is not found in Jesus Christ. You are your biggest enemy in finding contentment when you close your eyes to Jesus Christ. Your spouse will never satisfy you. And a life that is seeking contentment from a husband or a wife is a life of frustration and misery because your eyes are closed to Jesus. Yet when you find contentment in him, suddenly that relationship is so much better no matter what the situation is because you're thankful for what God has provided regardless of what it is or what it looks like. Your job is never going to bring contentment to your heart if your eyes are closed to Jesus. No matter how successful you are, it will always leave you lacking, wanting for more. But with Christ, everything changes. I have him, therefore I have everything I need. Everything. Even if I get passed over for like the eighth time in a row, well, but I have him. So what does that matter in light of him? Because I have him. If you're struggling with sensing the contentment that can come with treasuring Christ above all things, well, then you're really not treasuring him yet. You're putting too much hope in your children and what they can do for your heart 
or your spouse and what he or she can do for your heart or your job or what that can do for your life or your friends and what they can provide for your life or this church and what it can provide for you. You're seeking for contentment where contentment cannot be found. See Jesus for who he is. I have one answer for you, and it's the same answer you hear every time you walk into this building. We have one drum, and we beat it every single week. Look at the gospel. See who Christ is, the one who came down to this earth and clothed himself with the humiliation of being a man, endured the rejection of his own creation, opened himself to the horror of death upon the cross, and beyond that, the infinite horror of the, the abuse, not abuse, the, uh, what word am I looking for? The, uh, anybody? The, what? The separation from God upon the cross as he poured out his wrath upon his own son. He did that. He died. He rose again to give us life. Those who walked in rebellion to him. Those who, just like Adam said, I don't want satisfaction from you. I want satisfaction from this worldly fruit. Forget you. And he said, no, I'm going to show you what love is. I'm going to show you what real life is, what abundant life is. Open your eyes to me. Oh, you can't do that? Let me open them for you. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Let me supply every need. Let me, as you pray to me, let me remind you that I'm going to answer above and beyond anything you can think or imagine because that's who I am. Stop focusing in on the world around you and focus on him. And you too will say like Paul, I can do all things. I can endure anything. Why? Because I have Christ. And when we walk and live and interact with others with that mindset, think of the glory he receives. When we say with our lives, no, no, this situation, it hurts, but I have him. This, this thing over here, it didn't work out the way I wanted to, but I have him. This person over here, they're gone, and that is horrible, but I have him. That is glory to our Savior. And you know what the world's response to that is? I've heard a lot about Jesus, but I want to know the Jesus that you know. I want to get to know him. When they see those who can endure anything, who can truly do all things through Christ who strengthens them, they want to know more about him. I want to close by pointing out, I don't say these things to have you walk away feeling convicted and condemned. Don't do that. Don't walk away going, oh, I'm so awful because I, I, I have, I've made my kids into an idol and I've made my spouse into an idol and I've made my job into an idol and, and I, man, I'm just such an awful person. Don't do that. That's selfishness. 
Conviction should never lead to condemnation. It should lead to change. Focus your eyes on Christ and what he has done for you and then throw your life at the foot of the cross and say, God, I want you now. I've fallen short. I will fall short again. Fall short again. Please grab hold of my heart. We're going to close with come thou fount. And there's an awesome line in there that talks about how our hearts are prone to wander. And the author of that song says, please bind my wandering heart to you. That's change, not condemnation. That gives us hope. Hope to move on. Not to be paralyzed by fear in our own inadequacies. May we do that together. May we bring glory to our Lord as we pray and sing with one voice, Lord, bind our wandering hearts to you that you may be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, your truth is so amazing. We started out this service by being reminded that you are here. And sometimes worldly circumstances can blind us from your presence. And I ask now, Lord, would you, would you open our eyes? Cause us again with supernatural strength to see you. To be convicted by your Holy Spirit. Not to condemnation, but to change to throw us upon your mercy and your strength to provide all that we need so that we will say with Paul, who is weak? I am weak, but I have strength through my Lord and Savior. May our lives confess to the world around us that we too can do all things through Christ who strengthens us this morning. Do this for your glory. Bind our wandering hearts to you, Lord, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.